the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program was pre-recorded, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. We don't need no education. We don't need no thought control. Welcome to Education Nation, where we tackle the biggest issues in American education. School is now in session. Here are your hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hagstrom and co-host Mark Durkin. Well, good evening, and thank you for joining us here on Education Nation. I am Headmaster and host Rebecca Hagstrom, and it's a privilege to join you every Saturday evening here on AM 1280 The Patriot. And of course, I am joined in studio once again by the producer of Education Nation and my co-host, Mark Durkin. Another good Saturday evening to you, Rebecca. How are you? Well, you know what? I'm pretty sick of the whole quarantine thing. I'm going to say that. Get outside and move around. Yes, I have been getting outside and getting out quite a bit. I've actually been delivering coffees to our upper school students, and it's been such a joy to um, you know, pass that coffee along and just see a smiling nice face, touch. a real, a real person. You know, even if we're keeping our social distancing, um, it's just been such a joy. Yes. Well, it's been almost two months since Minnesota had its first coronavirus case, and since then, the state has confirmed five thousand one hundred and thirty-six cases and three hundred and forty-three COVID-related deaths. Just last week, or just actually a couple weeks ago, the Minnesota State Health Department reported that more than 70% of COVID-related deaths were connected to long-term care facilities. Unfortunately, the cure to curb the spread of COVID-19 is proving to be far more destructive than the virus itself. And we go back and we think about the date, March the 18th. That's when Governor Waltz issued both peacetime emergencies and then, of course, a shelter in place uh, followed uh, uh, that as well. And these executive orders have closed schools and businesses and hospitals are still not performing elective surgeries. They're placing people with serious health conditions in grave danger of having their life expectancies shortened. And despite the some 130,000 Minnesotans that have been uh, allowed to go back to work on a limited basis, that still leaves some 450,000 Minnesotans that are still waiting upon compensation through unemployment applications. Right. And so mm-hmm. it's a big number. We know the shelter in place was just extended on April the 30th. And so uh, there really just appears to be no immediate end in sight when you think about the micromanagement of how things are opening mm-hmm. back up. Absolutely. Well, last week we were joined in, or not in studio, sorry, as a calling guest um, by uh, Roger Chamber- Chamberlain, Senator Roger Chamberlain. And we were very glad to have him last week, and we're excited to have him back in studio with us again this week. And um, he felt that initially the response was appropriate, but with what we know 
um, now we need to really change course. And actually, I want to credit you, Senator Chamberlain. You, from the very beginning, did not think it was wise for the governor to be shutting down our businesses. You felt that it should be left in the hands of the businesses to make those decisions as to how to continue serving people in a safe manner while recognizing social distancing practices. And I really applaud you. I think you saw what um, difficulty might lie ahead in trying to reopen And so um, you were obviously very prescient with that. So here tonight, again, to help us analyze the state's response to COVID-19 is Minnesota State Senator Roger Chamberlain of Lionel Lakes. Senator Chamberlain represents District 38 and has been helping lead the fight in Minnesota, um, in the Minnesota Senate, sorry, to reopen the state. So Senator Chamberlain, thank you again for joining us again this week on Education Nation. Thank you very much. Good to be back. I uh, really uh, appreciate it, and thanks again for all the work you do. And, and uh, it's not easy to be out there day to day doing what you do. So thank you so much. Uh, yeah. God's blessed you. Thank blessed you. us with you. Yeah. Oh, thank thank you. you, Rebecca. You know, I just want to uh, start off. We're just going to really focus on a lot of discussion that we've heard in terms of the personal protection equipment on the job for. Uh, our frontline workers, the emergency room nurses, nurses and hospitals, doctors. My wife is an ER nurse, and like many of the nurses and doctors, uh, they have discussed the um, what appears to be somewhat of an issue with the N95 masks, masks. I mean, we know that the funding has been put in place by the legislature, Senator Chamberlain, for all of these supplies to adequately meet the need of our workers. Um, but, you know, some of the reports uh, we hear of uh, masks being sanitized only to be used for the next shift and uh, essentially using that same mask until it will uh, fall apart. And then earlier, about two weeks ago, we heard the story of a nurse at Unity Hospital in Fridley who was told by hospital management that she was not allowed to wear her N95 mask. And mm. prior to becoming infected, unbelievable, she said that she was working with COVID patients every shift. So if you could, Senator, share with us uh, what the legislature did deliver in terms of a funding package for this personal protection equipment. And why do you think that there are these types of complaints of equipment shortage coming from these workers? Um. First, you know, back in the week of March 9th, I think it was, we uh, gave the first uh, appropriation of $25 million. And then the following week, March 17th, we approved, 16th or 17th, we approved another $500 million of uh, funding for supplies for hospitals to, to support health care, right? My, by the way, my daughter works in an ER, a busy ER in an urban setting, and um similar experiences and i remember she had asked me uh, what we can do and that was a few days after we sent the, about a week after we sent the funding and it was a supply chain issue right you're trying to catch up but we should be there by now so what happened with that 525 million you helped the health care system short up and the governor did some other things and mdh organized some stuff uh talked about suppliers and manufacturers around the country so mm-hmm. um since then the, the er's are not overrun we should have had time to stabilize the hospitals. In fact, the governor said yesterday that the hospitals are in good shape. We can respond to anything. They got what they, we have what we need. So he said that yesterday. Yeah. And what they did set up was a logistics uh, uh, pro, uh, process. They brought in the National Guard to, to help run that logistics issue, that process. And then I also understood that a lot of, uh, of these, uh, a lot of the PPE was being distributed by and managed by MDH. So, Hmm. The hospitals are going through this logistics process to get the MDA, get the PPE. 
money's there, 500 and some million dollars ongoing, and uh, we should be okay. The governor said yesterday that we're ready to go. So the problems with the getting the supplies, I can't tell you. I can mm-hmm. only suspect that the government and the logistic control system is deciding who gets what and when and holding on to stuff. It's, yeah, uh, it seems like they're stockpiling it. I mean, for that kind of money, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. and I keep thinking about 3M being in our backyard here, um, and they supplied all these masks and, of course, came under fire there momentarily um, from the, <laughs> the Trump administration. Um, but but I'm that a boo boo there. And a mistake. Yes, I, I guess so. And it was called out publicly <clears throat> at a national yeah, level. Yeah. Um, however, if I were Governor Walls, I think I would um, ask for a call directly to the CEO of. 3M, and I would think mm-hmm. he would take that, being that it's the governor, mm-hmm. and say, right. hey, what can you do to help our hospitals get this PPE as mm-hmm. as soon as you've got it made? You know, let's just dro- deliver yeah. it directly to the hospitals. Yes. Let's not even go through MDH. You know, why right. why right. would they go through MDH under these circumstances when, you know, Mark's wife, literally, she's telling this story that she gets told and by the way, I used to work in healthcare, so I know mm-hmm. that you are mm-hmm. supposed to glove and mask and gown up mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. Every, every single, single patient. patient. Yes. Not yes. just every day, every yeah. single patient. And Mark's wife mm-hmm. and others like her are being told by their hospital administrators to use the same mask all week long and to even share a mask. She's been told to mm-hmm. leave her mask and have it sanitized mm-hmm. so that another person on the next shift, the, whatever, the next day, can use the same mask. This is mm-hmm. like a, this is almost as bad as like a third world country. It's I mean, you would, it, it's unacceptable <laughs> completely for the United mm-hmm. States of America. Mm-hmm. So there has to be, something has to be happening where these personal protective equipment pieces are not getting distributed or they are being stockpiled somewhere. And I just don't understand right. why. And it's angering just to well, think about the, right. the Fridley nurse who was told by management at Unity Hospital, you can't wear the N95 mask. And right. she gets up getting infected. Of course she taking did. Taking care of these patients. Which is, it's, I am just really stunned by this whole thing. And I don't know if there's going to be an investigation. I mean, I, I am not a person that likes to promote investigations. I'm really not. I think they use a lot of taxpayer dollars. But at some point, this just seems like... Things just do not add up, Senator Chamberlain. Well, you're right. Um, they created. They, they should have a supply chain set up, a uh, good stockpile. It's been a while. The ERs have been overrun, and so I think it's a combination of central control from the from MDH, the governor's office, and or the administrators at the hospitals wanting to hold on to this stuff. But you're right. It's not on you. They're supposed to glove up and gown. For yes, every patient. And yeah. now to be saying after this that we're short is surprising. So I don't know where the exact uh, problem is, but one can only imagine that when you when you do this sort of thing, you lose some flexibility yeah. and control yeah. management control, it's right? Very, right. very, very frustrating. Well, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit here. Um, well, this might be why they're trying to stockpile here. It says Dr. Fauci mm-hmm. came out, you know, about a week and a half ago, and said the second wave of COVID infections are inevitable. And they are, and that's the way communicable disease work, 
works, by the way, Mm -hmm. Um, all of them, not just COVID. And he also warned that we could be in for a bad fall and a bad winter if the right countermeasures aren't put in place. However, healthcare Mm -hmm. workers are concerned that extended lockdowns now are only postponing the inevitable, an explosion of infections in the fall when immune systems are having to fight a plethora of respiratory viruses, because it's still true that I believe 80% of respiratory illnesses are not COVID. So in the fall, when you've got all these other ones in there, and if, if people have been locked down, their immune systems are already going to be less strong. They're going to be more compromised than they were if they weren't locked down. Um, so do you think, do you believe that the supplies that the legislature funded for usage are being stockpiled for that reason, for a potential surge that they think is going to come this fall? I mean, it could be both, right? I mean, it could be a combination of things, but Again, here we go with the you know, we're going to all die again in the fall. I mean, yeah. this right. scares people to death. And and uh, I have read and heard and uh, the same things you have from again. Mm-hmm. I should have studied this up by saying everything I am saying is cited to credible research from universities, not University of Roger Chamberlain, but no. the, uh, Stanford and USC and. Others around the world. Dr. Katz from Yale and right in the heart of New York City. Um, Yeah, they're all over. Mm -hmm. Uh, University of Pennsylvania, others. So you're right. And the the two doctors from Accelerated Urgent Mm -hmm. uh, Healthcare System in California uh, had wide coverage, but then they were kicked off of YouTube. Mm -hmm. Um, But they said, look, they're immunologists. They've been doing that for 30 years themselves, 20 years themselves. They said, look, this is the way the immune system works. A lot of experts, he said, if you stay locked up in your house, you're not strengthening your immune system. Right. And this is not a, this is not Ebola, and we have to get out and strengthen the immune system. Otherwise, we just continue to push this off right. for the wrong reason. So right. you're right. Mm-hmm. That's what they've been mm-hmm. saying. Look, folks, that's the experts. It's not mm-hmm. Chamberlain and, and Rebecca and, and Mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's his experts saying this, and I'm not necessarily thinking that um, – Right, so I, yeah. it's it's a huge problem, and they may be mismanaging it on the front end for this reason. Right, yeah. right. You know, and despite the low mortality rate and hundreds of nurses that are being put on furlough, and this is happening in Regions Hospital, Children's mm-hmm. Hospitals, and thousands of employees at Mayo Hospitals have been furloughed or had their pay cut, uh, Governor mm-hmm. Waltz signed an executive order citing unprecedented challenge, including worker mm-hmm. shortages due to illness. Um, the order, mm-hmm. it authorizes out-of-state doctors and nurses to provide care mm-hmm. in Minnesota during this time. What is the reasoning behind the recruitment of out-of-state health workers while scores of Minnesota health care workers are being furloughed in increasing numbers? That certainly doesn't sound like Minnesota first. No. No. And what, what originally, during the early part of this, four weeks ago or something, concern was that these other uh, nurses, each state has its own licensing laws. Minnesota's pretty strict. We tried to make this more flexible a few years ago, but they didn't. So if you want to be a nurse and work in Minnesota, healthcare work in Minnesota, you've got to get a new license and go through all this other stuff. So at the early stages of COVID, they didn't know what to expect. So they said, well, we should loosen the, uh, the be more flexible in that in case we need resources from other states, healthcare workers from other states. So uh, that's why I did that. But you go down the chain a little bit and say, well, you know, someone who's a nurse that was furloughed here and does something that isn't ICU, they can't do ICU. Okay, fine. They're highly trained professionals. They can adapt and adjust to yeah, different right. jobs in a hospital. So I think it should still be a Minnesota first sort of thing. And uh, that's why I started. That's why he did it. 
but we should put our uh, Minnesota nurses before hiring out-of-state yeah. nurses. And, and the doctors as well. Totally agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Exactly. Oh, so on a related note, hospitals are losing millions of dollars because they are not seeing patients and not performing elective surgeries. And these surgeries will not happen at least until May 18th, as the governor will only say his administration is looking to revise the current ban on elective surgery after working with hospitals and healthcare professionals on how to modify the order. In the meantime, ER numbers are cut in half because people are deemed not sick enough to be admitted and surgeries aren't being performed. A big reason for this is the CDC guidelines warn that any intubation for surgery releases COVID droplets from infected patients into the air and nurses and doctors are at a greater risk for infection. However, diseases are are far more deadly, are not taking time off during this crisis. I have a friend myself, actually, whose uh, cancer surgery was postponed by two months. And uh, that's, you know, who knows the effect that that may have on his uh, final prognosis. Um, When do you think we can expect to see hospitals and clinics remove these restrictions and start getting people in to be treated for conditions that are deadly if they remain delayed? Uh, You are, of course, correct. And um, it has been another problem and uh, unforeseen problem, perhaps, a fallout from the COVID response in the state and other states, Um, elective surgeries. And uh, hospitals are losing, you know, $30, $40 million a day uh, for this. Now, somebody said putting profits before our lives. Lives are being lost. Lives will be lost because these elective surgeries cannot proceed. Right. And when you weigh to put this in the balance, you have all, I will be perfectly honest. Anybody can scream at me if they want. Call me and email me and scream. But the fact <laughs> of the matter is, the experts are saying that this COVID is anywhere from 0.1% to 0.5% fatality and a difference upon age. And so for that reason, we've shut these down, and people who need chemo treatment, dialysis, uh, mm-hmm. cancer surgery aren't getting it. Mm-hmm. So yep. mm-hmm. we're talking about lives. It's lives versus lives. Right. It's Everybody picking winners and losers is what it's doing. Yes. yes. And all across it's the board, by the way. Lives and it's out of balance. It mm-hmm. is out of balance. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll say that with perfect uh, clarity and honesty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Winners and losers, and it's out of balance. It's yeah. not right. Yep. And there's winners and losers when it comes to the economics as well, you know, and I don't even mm-hmm. want to go down that path right now. I'll let Mark go ahead right. and ask because he's dying to ask another question. Well, <laughs> you know, the, the real crisis here, I mean, mm-hmm. it's really brought up people to all of our lives. That That's the crisis. And the challenges are compounded by the fact that some very troubling actions are taking place in the Minnesota legislature. Um, there are less than three weeks that are before the constitutionally mandated end of the 2020 legislative session. And instead of working On time-sensitive, essential legislation, we find out that Democrats in the Minnesota House are trying to pass a bill that would mandate that all Minnesotans would have to vote by mail, regardless of the public health issues, if any, remain from the pandemic. So, Mm -hmm. Senator Chamberlain, explain for our listeners how this is one of the most (laughs) controversial election bills introduced in the country. And would the Minnesota Senate put an end to this piece of legislation? Vote by mail is fraud. Fraud is suppression. Right. You want your voice to count. You want your vote vote to count. You want your voice heard. You don't want mail-in voting for the entire mm-hmm. state. Mm-hmm. Mail-in voting is fraud. Yes. If you, they will decide who gets. What they do is they go through their list and mail it out to you. So you may not even get a ballot. <laughs> right. Or you're, or someone who, who's dead might get a ballot. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. All kinds of problems. Secondly, if you get a ballot and you send it back in, who knows if it gets somewhere? 
mm-hmm. ends up they in a trunk. Lost in the sewer and the trash in the trunk. Mm-hmm. Thirdly, if they do get it, how do you know it's been counted properly? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's this is fraud and it's an intentional fraud. It's suppression of vote. If you want your vote to count, if you want to have your voice heard, mail-in voting is not the way to go. All votes are important. All votes are essential. This is fraud. People in the state of Minnesota can do absentee ballot. They request the ballot, and they can mail it in. Mm -hmm. They request, they can mail it in. Now, thirdly, they cannot do this without legislative action. The law states that mail-in voting can only be done with townships and small communities. And um, secondly, they need money to do it because they need money to get the ballots and send it all out. So they cannot do it without violating the Constitution by uh, appropriating money and changing statute. Mm-hmm. If they do that, there's going to be big, big trouble. Mm-hmm. This is a way to steal an election. Your vo- voice won't count. Your vote won't count. You won't be heard. It's fraud. It's vote suppression. Our opponents always talk about suppression of vote. This is oppression of vote. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want it, it's bad. Mm-hmm. I think I've covered that. Yes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you made that point. Well, and I think it's no accident, by the way, that this very type of voting, mail-in voting, has been proposed over and over by, I think, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And we all know where they stand on you know, a lot of the issues. So these, these are extreme uh, measures that they were trying to get put into place that now the Minnesota Democratic-led House is trying to take on. Yes. Um, I think that mm-hmm. gives you a little picture of what what that Democratic House looks like in terms of their views. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. Did you want me to give you a little picture? <laughs> no, no. I just said it gives a picture. It provides a picture. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, yeah. it's well, kind of yeah, an obvious yeah, picture. Mm-hmm. There is no reason for mail-in voting. Right. By the fall, this is going to be gone. You can, when you go and vote, you can easily stand two or three feet apart, and these uh, you don't have to be crunched in line. And you can, uh, when you vote, there's plenty of space between the uh between the uh, voting booths to do this. Yeah, so, if you can go to Walmart and you can go exactly. to Menards, yeah, you can go to the voting booths. And people are moving in the stores. <laughs> They're bumping into each other. Liquor store, right. yes, liquor store, Walmarts, Home Depots, yeah. Yeah. anywhere, yeah. you can go vote. So this is yeah. a fraud. This is an intentional attempt to steal an election, yeah. create fraud and suppression. Well, and then when they're proposing so, that, it's mistake. hard when they're proposing mail-in, it's hard not to then suspect that that's why the lockdown orders are continuing and why he's yeah. not willing to say that the schools are going to be open in the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, because the right. more you can continue this crisis, the more you can justify a mail-in yeah. vote. And I think that's something that our right. listeners um, need to, you know, kind of talk about with their friends and family. Right. All Beer right. Beer is a powerful motivator. Yes, it is. So you're encouraging Minnesota businesses um, who are impacted by closures to apply for federal paycheck protection program grants. Mm -hmm. And the program received a new round of funding and applications, and it opened again uh, just a couple weeks ago. Can you share with our listeners some of the details concerning that program? Well, it doesn't work for everybody. Not everybody qualifies or conditions. It can be used for, it has to be used for payroll or rent or something of that sort, right? Mm -hmm. And I talked to one business owner, five retail places, they're all closed. I mean, what happens is a lot of these people that are making under 55K a year, you'd have to keep them on the payroll, right? Mm -hmm. But then you're paying them to stay home and not work because they can't come to work. So their store is forced to close. 
Now you keep them on the payroll so you, and you get compensated through payroll protection. Mm-hmm. But now you're paying them to sit home. Mm-hmm. And they're going to say, well, why would I do that? I'm going to file for unemployment because if I'm, I'm making $155,000 a year, I can file for unemployment, get 50% of my wage, plus $600 a week. <laughs> so now you're going to make more uh, on unemployment because mm-hmm. you get 50% of your of your weekly wage up to 50% with a cap, right? Mm-hmm. And plus you get the 600 bucks on top of it. Now you're saying as a rational person, I'm not saying these are under irrational people, but rational are saying, I'm making $1,100 a month here and I'm making 900 bucks a month there. Mm-hmm. 1100 bucks a month or whatever the number is, I'm only making 1000 this way. So they're going to make the decision to stay home and collect more money that way, plus the $1,200 stimulus check, right? Mm-hmm. So... Um, uh, the PPP program, the PPP has got problems, it's conditions, it, it doesn't work for everybody, it works for some. But what the feds have done is really convoluted this whole thing and made the bad situation even worse. Because mm-hmm. now when we open up again, hopefully, uh, how do you get people back to work before the end of July? Mm-hmm. Senator right. Chamber, let me ask you this real quick, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought I heard on April 23rd during the governor's uh, briefing that when he first... Uh, provided the way for these non-critical businesses to go back to work. Didn't the employees have to go back to work if those businesses decided to open? And would that affect uh, what type of compensation they would receive, if any, in terms of unemployment compensation? I, I believe I, I believe so, because part I think part of the requirement was you had to keep them. The business could not lay them off. And like you said, I had to double-check that piece, but uh, the condition might be that you had to come back to work. Mm-hmm. So if you don't, well, then... <laughs> you run into more problems, and mm-hmm. and uh, what if you close up your shop? What if you just right. can't operate anymore? Now you got these other problems, and then your PPP might be taxable. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it really, it really is a mess. It can be complicated. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that the governor has done is he has, you know, called these emergency powers, which then allows him to make these sweeping orders. Um, is there mm-hmm. anything that the Minnesota legislature can do to remove this power from the governor in an attempt to speed up the reopening of the state? Yeah, well, there's a couple things. Uh, his power, the, the, the statute's terrible. 12.31 is a terrible statute written in the 50s. And how it, how it reads is essentially is that he can re, he can renew this every 30 days um, without legislative approval. Mm-hmm. If the legislature is not in session, say June, then he has to call us back to session. Right. So in, in March when he did this, we were in session. He just proclaims it, self-proclaimed peacetime emergency. Emergency. He keeps it. In March, he uh, in April he re- did it again. Another 30 days. It goes to May 13th. So now here's what we can do to stop it. The legislature, in order to stop that, the legislature can vote with the majority vote. House and Senate, House and Senate both have to vote with the majority to say we want to end the peacetime powers. Mm. And then, and then he, those powers would be removed. Now the House would have to agree to that. Right. Now if he extends it again in, in May, on May 13th, then it goes until June, and he'd have to call us back if he wants to renew it again. So theoretically, folks, mm-hmm. he could do this forever. Unbelievable. That's right. So people need to be terrible. People need to be calling. They need to be calling in to their legislators or legislators mm-hmm. and Governor Walls's office. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
You know, there was a. Yeah, this, is, this is terrible. We'll, we'll, we'll finish with this. This is not a game, folks. This is real life. Yes, yeah, it is. Yeah. It, can never, it can never happen here. It's, it's you know, and I'm just, I am dumbfounded at how quickly this swept over us, uh, the change, yes. and how quickly we gave yes. up our rights, thinking it was going to be for. For the good. And now that we're seeing the actual data on the numbers and seeing how low the death rate really, really is, um, clearly these powers are being clung to um, in the face of almost desperation. You know, like it's time to (laughs) it's really time to to hold our representatives accountable. We have to. Yeah, we have to. It's uh well, let's pray that the people in the let's pray for the wisdom and of everybody in the population to understand that. This is real, and it's going to end if we don't stop it. Absolutely. Uh, That was the whole foundation of our country, was to use our inalienable rights. So, All right. Well, Senator Chamberlain, thank you so much for joining us last week and this week. We're so grateful to you, and keep up the good work. Thank you, Senator. uh, Thank you, Mark. And to our listeners, if you want to listen to this podcast, it's at ednationmn.org, ednationmn.org. Have a good night. Thanks. God's peace to all of you. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.